Hey there, podcast listeners, and welcome to this week's Physics Central podcast. I'm Mike Lucibella. I'm reporting this week from the Ig Nobel Prize Ceremony at Harvard University, the annual award that recognizes the year's most unorthodox scientific research. And to give you an idea of the kind of weird stuff that they honor, this year's Physics Prize winner studied the frictional coefficient of someone slipping on a banana peel. This is Kiyoshi Mabuchi accepting his prestigious award on behalf of his team. Now, truth be told, I'm a little surprised nobody had thought to study this before. Of course, slippery bananas sound silly on the face of it, but Mabuchi is trying to develop a synthetic cartilage with the right viscosity and frictional coefficient to use in the joints of humans. So why not chuck a banana while you're at it? You never know where some useful discovery might come from. Now, that really gets to what the Ignobles are all about. Their motto is honoring science that makes you laugh, then makes you think. So take the biology prize, for example. We observed dogs um, when they were peeing or pooing, and we found out that they aligned their body axis with the magnetic field lines, but only under calm magnetic conditions. If the magnetic um, field is a little shaky, the the dogs align randomly. This is Sabine Begal from the University of Duisburg-Essen in Germany. We had um, 50 dog keepers who went out with their dogs. We had in total 70 dogs, and they went um, on their um, usual walk. They had a compass, pencil, and then they observed the dogs um, when they did their business, and um, they noted the head direction of the dogs. At first, it seems like a big jump to go from that information to declaring that dogs have some kind of built-in compass. But the team was rigorous in how they gathered their data. Uh, We collected the data over a period of two years under totally different weather conditions. So the sun were in, uh, was in different positions or it, sometimes it was rainy and also the dog keepers noticed the weather conditions um, and there was no common denominator to explain this. But only this factor, the magnetic declination, could explain it. A lot of bird species seem to be magnetically sensitive like this, as well as a few other mammals. But scientists have had a hard time studying them. You know, to this day, scientists are still not entirely sure what sensory organ these animals use to detect magnetic fields. So now we have a, um, a species which is um, globally available, and uh, we can collect more and more data, and we can now investigate um, the magnetic sense in a mammal, which is yeah easily available um, worldwide. And um, yeah, beforehand we made studies on. A red, on the red fox, and the, this animal is also magnetosensitive, but it is difficult to work with foxes because they are not tame, but dogs are tame, and so now from um, here on we can proceed and we can look for the receptors, for example. If dogs have a sixth sense for detecting Earth's magnetic fields, humans seem to have an uncanny knack for seeing faces where there really aren't any. Kang Lee from the University of Toronto explains. Uh, my research, I think that I got my <laughs> award, is called uh, Seeing Jesus on Toast. Seeing Jesus on Toast. What, what's that about? I see. So we are looking for, at the phenomenon in uh, perceptual uh, psychology called uh, uh, face pareidolia. That is seeing non-existent faces in everyday objects. The question we had was, was that a brain anomaly? Or was that a normal perceptual process? So everyone's heard of people seeing Jesus' face appear on burnt toast or water stains. And Lee wondered, why is that so prevalent? So he and his team devised a test. Burning lots of toast and asking people if they saw Jesus was impractical. So he and his team came up with a different experiment. 
the way we did it was to show participants um, images, totally noise images, and there are no faces whatsoever, nothing in it. And then, but we lied to our participants. We told them 50% of the time they are going to see faces, and 50% of the time they are not going to see any faces. And they just press buttons whenever they see a face, they push one button, and then the other if they do not see a face. And the results seem pretty clear. 100% of participants in our, in our study, if we told them there were faces, 100% of them would say, yes, we have seen faces. So that means the beliefs, our beliefs, our expectations are very, very strong. It actually can influence strongly our perception of the world. Because we tend to believe, you know, what we see is what's real out there, but sometimes what we see is really what's up there in our head. So even though the pictures are really just a bunch of random blobs, people are so predisposed to seeing faces that they'll pick out shapes that look anything like eyes and a mouth. Faces are so important in our everyday social life for our adaptation. So we, we need uh, to have this super alertness to faces. And we are biologically disposed to faces. So that's why whenever there's a slight suggestion of faces, your, your brain starts to fire. So that's why you see faces. So in the seeing Jesus on toast is because you have this strong belief about certain uh, images, certain religious icons, and then you are look for these kind of images in the world. So hypothetically, if I were really, really into, say, Star Wars, I'd see oh, Luke Skywalker yeah. on toast. Yeah, oh, totally, totally, yes. Or if you are Buddhist, you're going to see Buddha, right? So you believe in, I don't know, so it depends on your belief. It could be Bar Simpson or whatever, right? So... <laughs> The team put some of the participants under a brain scanner and saw that the part of the brain that registers seeing real faces is the same part of the brain that lights up when people think they see faces that really aren't there. Basically, it tells us about the interaction between the visual cortex and the frontal lobe. Then think about this. So there are individuals who are super alert to snakes, to spiders. So maybe there's a way to look at their brain activation to find out why there are these super sensitivities and maybe you can do some training or, or, or a treatment to reduce this uh, uh, sen sen super sensitivity. Now I then talked to another couple of researchers who were also looking for hidden patterns, but this time in medical data rather than random images. I'm David Hanauer and I'm from the University of Michigan. I'm Narain Ramakrishnan, I'm from Virginia Tech. They won the public health prize for, quote, investigating whether it is mentally hazardous for a human being to own a cat. And they found that, in essence, people who go to the hospital for cat bites seem to have higher rates of depression. Well, we had done a data mining experiment where we were really just looking at uh, any kind of interesting association that uh, might have come out, not always knowing what we're looking for, just to sort of see how well this can work. And one of the more unusual associations that really popped out at us was this one between cat bites and depression. How, how did it pop out? Like, what do you mean? <laughs> it, it popped out in the sense that when we, we were reviewing some of the more uh, significant associations, this one uh, really kind of stood out as being a, a very strange one where we really scratched our heads and wondered, what, what could this be about? Could this really be something that's tr true or not? Now, one might be tempted to conclude from this that cat bites cause depression. But really, this work is an example of how cautious researchers are before jumping to conclusions. Well, I, I think we should be very careful about discussing uh, causation here. I don't think what we found is in any way implying causation. What we found is really an association, and it probably isn't even the bite itself. It may just be having uh, a cat in the house or, or being near cats. We, we don't really know. Uh, but what we found was that uh, people who came in with a cat bite had a much higher uh, rate of depression 
than those uh, without, without the bites, um, especially women. So women were uh, disproportionately affected uh, by this, it seems. But we have no idea what the actual cause is. The reason is because the data that they have just simply wasn't designed to address the question of what causes what. So this was what we would call um, the secondary use of clinical data. The primary uses are for clinical care. Secondary use is when we go back to the electronic records of uh, the patients in our health system and try to use it for research and look for other uh, kinds of interesting findings. And that's really what this was. So that's partly why it's really difficult to tease out the relationships because this was data that was just captured for people coming in with bites and people trying to care for those uh, bites and, and treating them appropriately. If we, if we imply a causation without really knowing what the reason is, then we're really just uh, jumping ahead of ourselves without um, uh, exploring what all the possibilities might actually be. Not really what science does. That should not be what it is about, yes. And, and I, I want to add, uh, I mean, the, like you mentioned, the data was collected as part of routine care, right? So the, there are no controls. There are, there are, there's no uh, systematic study of the association that, that has gone in here. And furthermore, we've been looking at uh, records that have been coded in everyday practice, so there could be a lot of, uh, you know, uh, imperfections in, in the actual coding that went through. So, uh, but it's it's still a very striking association. That's why we reported on it, uh, and we have uh, compared it or connected it to a lot of le relevant literature. But uh, we are not really people who are experimenting with cat bites or with depression. So, but we are hoping that this association might, you know, make somebody else look at it in more uh, greater detail and you know investigate it further. I think for someone to look into this further, uh, it might require someone with uh, perhaps some microbiology expertise or, or some other laboratory uh, kind of work, although we, we really don't really know. So I, I think, though, that what we'd like to see is if other people can replicate uh, the same findings at, at other institutions, and then uh, we can start asking the questions about how we might really uh, um, figure out what the, the actual cause might be, if there is a cause. And that's really the important thing to remember. Conclusions in science have to be bound by the limits of the original data. That's all for this week's Physics Central podcast. A big thanks also to the Boston Squeezebox Ensemble, who you can hear playing in the background right now and at the beginning of the podcast. You can find more of our podcasts, our Physics Buzz blog, resources, and so much more at www.physicscentral.com. Thanks for listening.